0: hi everyone welcome back to the podcast exploring short stories i apologize i could not upload any reading um of any short story for the past two months i was a bit busy with exams and writing term papers um now that i'm back um month of March, I have chosen the short story called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. And this short story is written by Ursula K. Le Guin, an American author best known for her works of speculative fiction. Uh, So here we go. The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas by Ursula K. LeGuin from The Wind's Twelve Quarters With the clamour of bells that set the swallows soaring, the festival of summer came to the city Omelas, bright towered by the sea. The ringing of the boats in harbour sparkled with flags, In the streets between houses with red roofs, and painted walls between old moss-grown gardens and under avenues of trees, past great parks and public buildings, processions moved. Some were decorous, old people in long stiff robes of mauve and grey, grave master workmen, quiet merry women, carrying their babies, and chatting as they walked. In other streets, the music beat faster. A shimmering of gong and tambourine, and the people went dancing. The procession was a dance. Children dodged in and out, their high calls rising like the swallows crossing flights over the music and the singing. All the processions wound towards the north side of the city, where on the great water meadow called the green fields, boys and girls, naked in the bright air, with mud-stained feet and angles and long lithe arms, exercised their restive horses before the race. The horses wore no gear at all, but a halter without bit. Their manes were braided with streamers of silver, gold and green. They flared their nostrils and pranced and boasted to one another. They were vastly excited, the horse being the only animal who has adopted our ceremonies as his own. Far off to the north and west, the mountain stood up, half encircling Omelas on her bay. The air of morning was so clear that the snow still crowning the 18 peaks burned with white-cold fire across the miles of sunlit air, under the dark blue of the sky. There was just enough wind to make the banners that marked the race-course snap and flutter now and then. In the silence of the broad green meadows one could hear the music winding throughout the city streets farther and nearer and ever approaching a cheerful faint sweetness of the air from time to time trembled and gathered together and broke out into the great joyous clanging of the bells joyous how is one to tell about joy How describe the citizens of Omelas? They were not simple folk, you see, though they were happy. But we do not say the words of cheer much anymore. All smiles have become archaic. Given a description such as this one, tends to make certain assumptions. Given a description such as this one, tends to look next for the king, mounted, mounted, on a splendid stallion and surrounded by his noble knights, or perhaps in a golden litter borne by great muscled slaves. But there was no king. They did not use swords or keep slaves. They were not barbarians. I do not know the rules and laws of their society, but I suspect there were singularly few. As they did without monarchy and slavery, so they also got on without the stock exchange, the advertisement, the secret police and the bomb. Yet, I repeat that these were not simple folk, not shepherds, noble savages, planned utopians. These were not less complex than us. The trouble is that we have a bad habit. Encouraged by pendants and sophisticates of considering happiness as something rather stupid. Only pain is intellectual, only evil interesting. This is the treason of the artist. A refusal to admit the banality of evil and the terrible boredom of pain. If you can't lick him, join him. If it hurts, repeat it. But to praise despair is to condemn delight, To embrace violence is to lose hold of everything else. We have almost lost hold. We can no longer describe happy man nor make any celebration of joy. How can I tell you about the people of Omelas? They were not naive and happy children, though their children were in fact happy. There were mature, intelligent, passionate adults whose lives were not wretched. Oh, miracle! But I wish I could describe it better. I wish I could convince you. Omela's sounds in my words like a city in a fairy tale, long ago and far away, once upon a time. Perhaps it would be best if you imagined it as your own fancy bits. Assuming it will rise to the occasion, for certainly I cannot suit you all. For instance, how about technology? I think that there would be no cars or helicopters in and above the streets. This follows from the fact that the people of Amelas are happy people. Happiness is based on a just discrimination of what is necessary. What is neither necessary nor destructive. And what is destructive? In the middle category, however, that of the unnecessary but undestructive, that of, that of comfort, luxury, exuberance, etc., they could perfectly well have central heating, subway trains, washing machines, and all kinds of marvelous devices not yet invented here. Floating light sources, fuelless power, a cure for the common cold, Or they could have none of that. It doesn't matter. As you like it. I incline to think that people from towns up and down the coast have been coming to Omelas during the last days before the festival on very fast little trains and double-decked trams, And that the train station of Omelas is actually the handsomest building in town, though plainer than the magnificent farmer's market. But even granted trains, I fear that Omela's so far strikes some of you as goody-goody. Smiles, bells, parades, horses, blare. If so, please add an orgy. If an orgy would help, don't hesitate. Let us not, however, have temples from which issue beautiful nude priests and priestesses already half in ecstasy, and ready to copulate with any man or woman, lover or stranger, who desires union with the deep godhead of the blood. Although that was my first idea. But really, it would be better not to have any temples in Omela's, at least not manned temples. Religion, yes, clergy no. Surely the beautiful nudes can just wander about, offering themselves like divine souffles to the hunger of the needy and the rapture of the flesh. Let them join the processions, let tambourines be struck above the copulations and the gory of desire be proclaimed upon the gongs, and a not unimportant point, let the offspring of these delightful rituals be beloved and looked after by all. One thing I know there is, none of Gomela's Omela's, is guilt. But what else should there be? I thought at first there were no drugs, but that is puritanical. For those who like it, the faint, insistent sweetness of druze may perfume the ways of the city. Druze which first brings a great lightness and brilliance to the mind and limbs, and then, after hours, a dreamy languor, and wonderful visions at last of the very arcane and inmost secrets of the universe, as well as exciting the pleasure of sex beyond all belief. And it is not habit-forming. For most modest tastes, I think there ought to be beer. What else? What else belongs in the joyous city? The sense of victory, surely, the celebration of courage. But as we did without clergy, let us do without soldiers. The joy built upon successful slaughter is not the right kind of joy. It will not do. It is fearful fearful, and it is trivial. A boundless and generous contentment, a magnanimous triumph, felt not against some outer enemy, but in communion with the finest and fairest in the souls of all men everywhere and the splendor of the world's summer. This is what swells the hearts of the people of Amelas and the victory they celebrate is that of life. I don't think many of them need to take Druze. Most of the processions have reached the green fields by now. A marvellous smell of cooking goes forth from the red and blue tents of the provisioners. The faces of small children are amiably sticky. In the benign grey beard of a man, a couple of crumbs of rich pastry are entangled. The youths and girls have mounted their horses and are beginning to group around the starting line of the course. An old woman, small, fat and laughing, is passing out flowers from a basket, and tall young men wear her flowers in their shining hair. A child of nine or ten sits at the edge of the crowd alone, playing on a wooden flute. People pause to listen and they smile, but they do not speak to him, for he never ceases playing. And never sees them, his dark eyes wholly wrapped in the sweet thing magic of the tune. He finishes and slowly lowers his hands, holding the wooden flute, as if that little little private silence were the signal, all at once a trumpet sounds from the pavilion near the starting line, imperious, melancholy, piercing. The horses rear on their slender legs, and some of them nigh in answer. Sober-faced, the young riders stroke the horses' necks and soothed them, whispering, Quiet, quiet, there my beauty, my hope. They begin to form in rank along the starting line. The crowds along the race course are like a field of grass and flowers in the wind the festival of summer has begun do you believe do you accept the festival the city the joy no then let me describe one more thing in a basement under one of the beautiful public buildings of omelas or perhaps in the Cellar of one of its spacious private homes, there is a room. It has one locked door and no window. A little light seeps in dustily between cracks in the boards, second hand from a cobwebbed window somewhere across the cellar. In one corner of the little room are a couple of mops with stiff, clotted, foul smelling heads stand near a rusty bucket. The floor is dirt, a little damp to the touch, as cellar dirt usually is. The room is about three paces long and two wide. A mere broom closet or disused tool room. In the room, a child is sitting. It could be a boy or a girl. It looks about six, but actually is nearly ten. It is feeble-minded. Perhaps it was born defective or perhaps it has become imbecile through fear malnutrition and neglect. It picks its nose and occasionally fumbles vaguely with its toes or genitals as it sits hunched in the corner farthest from the bucket and the two mops. It is afraid of the mops. It finds them horrible. It shuts its eyes, but it knows the mops are still standing there. And the door is locked and nobody will come. The door is always locked and nobody ever comes, except that sometimes the child has no understanding of time or interval. Sometimes the door rattles terribly and opens and a person or several people are there. One of them may come in and kick the child to make it stand up. The others never come close, but peer in at it with frightened, disgusted eyes. The food bowl and the water jug are hastily filled. The door is locked, the eyes disappear. The people at the door never say anything, but the child, who has not always lived in the tool room and can remember sunlight and its mother's voice, sometimes speaks, I will be good. It says, please let me out, I will be good. They never answer. The child used to scream for help at night and cry a good deal, but now it only makes a kind of whining. "Hee ha hee ha And it speaks less and less often. It is so thin, there are no calves to its legs, its belly protrudes. It lives on a half bowl of cornmeal and grease a day. It is naked. Its buttocks and thighs are a mass of festered sores as it sits in its own excrement continually. They all know it is there, all the people of Omelas. Some of them have come to see it. Others are content merely to know it is there. They all know that it has to be there; some of them understand why, and some do not, but they all understand that their happiness, the beauty of their city, the tenderness of their friendships, the health of their children, the wisdom of the scholars, the skill of their makers, even the abundance of their harvest, and the kindly weathers of their skies depend wholly on. This child's abominable misery. This is usually explained to children when they are about 8 and 12, whenever they seem capable of understanding. And most of those who come to see the child are young people, though often an adult comes or comes back to see the child. No matter how well the matter has been explained to them, these young spectators are always shocked and sickened at the sight. They feel disgust, which they had thought themselves superior to. They feel anger, outrage, impotence, despite all the explanations. They would like to do something for the child, but there is nothing they can do. If the child were brought up into the sunlight out of the out of that wild place, if it were cleaned and fed and comforted, that would be a good thing indeed. But if it were done in that day and hour all the prosperity and beauty and delight of omelas would wither and be destroyed. Those are the terms to exchange all the goodness and grace of every life in omelas for that single, small improvement. To throw away the happiness of thousands for the chance of happiness of one. That would be to let guilt within the walls indeed. The terms are strict and absolute. They may not even be a kind word spoken to the child. Often the young people go home in tears or in a tearless rage, when they have seen the child and faced this terrible paradox. They may brood over it for weeks or years, but as time comes and goes, they begin to realize that even if the child could be released, it would not get much good of its freedom. A little vague pleasure of warmth and food, no real doubt, but little more. It is too degraded and imbecile to know any real joy. It has been afraid too long ever to be free of fear. Its habits are too uncouth for it to respond to humane treatment. Indeed, after so long it would probably be wretched without walls about it to protect it. And darkness for its eyes and its own excrement to sit in. Their tears at the bitter injustice dry when they begin to perceive the terrible justice of reality and to accept it. Yet it is their tears and anger, the trying of their generosity and the acceptance of their helplessness, which are perhaps the true source of the splendor of their lives. Theirs is no vapid, irresponsible happiness. They know that they, like the child, are not free. They know compassion. It is the existence of the child and their knowledge of its existence that makes possible the nobility of their architecture, the poignancy of their music, the profundity of their science. It is because of the child that they are so gentle with children. They know that if the wretched one were not there snivelling in the dark, the other one, the flute-player, Could make no joyful music as the young riders line up in their beauty for the race in the sunlight of the first morning of summer. Now do you believe them? Are they not more credible? But there is one more thing to tell and this is quite incredible. At times one of the adolescent girls or boys who go see the child does not go home to weep or rage does not in fact go home at all. Sometimes also a man or a woman, much older, falls silent for a day or two, then leaves home. These people go out into the street and walk down the street alone. They keep walking and walk straight out of the city of Amelas, through the beautiful gates. They keep walking across the farmlands of Amelas. Each one goes alone, Youth or girl, man or woman. Night falls. The traveller must pass down village streets, between the houses with yellow-lit windows, and on out in the darkness of the fields. Each alone, they go west or north towards the mountains. They go on. They leave Omelas. They walk ahead into the darkness, and they do not come back. The place they go towards is a place even less imaginable to most of us than the city of happiness. I cannot describe it at all. It is possible that it does not exist. But they seem to know where they are going. The ones who walk away from Umela's. Thank you.